Hi, my name is Dale. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, our, my wife and I have this little ritual we do every year when we come to this meeting, and that is we grab the book, look at the back, start going through the meetings that we attended. And the first one that we came to was in 1992 at uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and we've been to not every of, every one of them since then, but, but most of them. Uh, but the part of our little ritual is to go through those years and look at them and see, like 1992, the reason we came to this was because we were basically so broke, we couldn't afford to take the family on a vacation. You know, I was trying to straighten out the financial wreckage of the past, and uh, my hospital, that I, I'm an ER doc, the hospital I was working for was willing to pay to send me to a conference, and so I had them send me to this one. And I could I could bring my family, and uh, you know that was quite a gift. Uh, we look at a lot of the other ones and and remember them as oh yes, that was the year that we left our daughter at home because she was 16 and I was about to kill her, uh, or you know that was the that was the year that uh, that was the year that I was in the process of getting fired, uh, or that was the year that I was in the process of looking for a new job. It's kind of morbid, but it but it's a good way to kind of remember where we were uh, at the time. Uh, I, I say that as an introduction because when we were here in Minneapolis in 1997, it was two months after my father had been killed in a car accident. Uh, and it was still a very difficult time. I, I My father and I had, had had a somewhat difficult relationship. Uh, and we were in the process of, I mean, after two months, I was still you know deeply involved in grief. Uh, and I, I'm very thankful because all of you people here uh, who were here and have been here through these meetings uh, have helped me get through the rough times. Uh, John uh, from Oklahoma was talking you know, about taking a rope and tying, you know, when you get to the end of your rope, you tie a knot in. Uh, and I, I, it's particularly meaningful for me to hear that from John because John a few years ago had little pins made up, a little silver it's like a knot on the end of a rope. And when I moved to Florida, started a new job, Tony Kay was there, and Tony said, take this. Wear it. And every day on my lab coat, every day when I, I, I have this little silver knot that I wear, and that's, you know, that's from Tony Kay. And I can't tell you how many times as an ER doc, and there's a lot of times I felt like I was getting close to the end of my rope. You know, I'll look down and I'll see that and I'll think about Tony Kay and I'll think about John and I think about all the, the other wonderful people I've met in these rooms. Uh, and, you know, in fact, you were the ones that did get me through the tough times. And I am very, very appreciative of that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about something that may make some of you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about it. Uh, and that is the, the, the family disease of alcoholism. And I'm not talking about my kids. I'm talking about my father and my grandfather and the people before. Because one of the things I've learned through, you know, now I got sober in, in 86, uh, is that a lot, there's, have, one of the problems of getting sober was that I really had to go back and deal with a lot of the issues that came about because I grew up in an alcoholic home. You know, and I realized some of you did not. 
And I, and I've known that because in meetings I've watched and people start talking about growing up in an alcoholic home and the people that didn't go, huh? You know, you really don't, they, they don't seem to understand. When I was in, a freshman in college, my roommate was a kid from Chicago and I'm, I'm from rural Illinois. And so these people from Chicago were always, you know, fascinating to me. They were different. Uh, and so like freshman in college roommates do, we'd sit around and talk about our families. And I would tell him about my family. And he'd go, that's weird. And I said, no, that's normal. That's normal. You're weird. No, that's weird. Uh, my wife, who was from actually the same small town that I'm from, uh, as she became a part of our family, uh, looked at it and said, that's weird. And I said, no, 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 no. That's normal. You're weird. And she was, you know, being a good, she was also an alcoholic and a good Al-Anon, so she bought that. <laughs> you know, I convinced her that my family was normal. Her family was the one that was strange. I tell you that because those of us who grew up in an alcoholic home, I think, especially those of us with alcoholic fathers, and I apologize to the women in the audience, I, real, I realize I'm not speaking to you. I don't know what it's like for a woman to have an alcoholic father or an alcoholic mother. I'm talking mainly about men and their relationships, but uh, I, I have the feeling that there's probably some equivalence there. Um, you know, my I had to work through a lot of issues with my father before I could get into recovery. Uh, in, in good, solid recovery. And I was fortunate. My dad died drinking. He was not, it was a traffic accident. He wasn't drunk at the time. But he certainly was active in his disease right up till the very end. And that was, that was difficult. Um, I did manage, finally, in the last three or four years of his life, to establish a decent father-son relation with him to, to the point that you can. But I was left with several things that were very, very difficult for me to deal with. You come into this program, and I was told, get a sponsor, and unless you're gay, you get a male sponsor. Well, I got news for you. Alcoholic adult men scared me because my father was the kind of guy who was unpredictable as hell. You know, there's a wonderful joke uh, that I dearly love. This, this elementary teacher wants the kids in the room to tell a story, and she wants the story to be a story that has a moral attached to it, and then to tell what the moral is. Well, little Susie holds up her hand, and the teacher says, tell me. She goes, oh, she goes, my mother has milk cows, and she milked some cow, the cow the other day, and she was carrying the milk in from the barn, and she tripped, and she spilled it, and she was very upset, but my father told her she shouldn't worry. And the teacher says, well, that's, that's really great. That's really great. Now, what's the moral to that story? She goes, the moral to the story is don't cry over spilt milk. The teacher thought that was wonderful. Billy holds up his hand. And he goes, my mom raises, has chickens and she has eggs. And so she had, you know, a basket full of eggs and she was coming in and she tripped on the step and she dropped them and they all broke. And she was very upset because that was what she used for, for a little extra money around the house. And the teacher says, well, that's nice. What's the moral of that story? And she said, well, the moral of that story is don't put all your eggs in one basket. 
And the teacher thought that was wonderful. Well, Johnny, back in the back of the room, who never volunteers, hold up his hand, and he's waving like crazy. And so the teacher says, well, this is a good opportunity. I'll see. So she, he goes, well, tell me the story. And he goes, yeah. He goes, back in Vietnam, my old man was out in a foxhole guarding the perimeter. He had a, a bottle of Jack Daniels, a case of beer, a hundred bullets, and a knife. And he'd been drinking the beer all day, and he looked up and he saw 101 Viet Cong coming over the hill. So he chugged the bottle of Jack Daniels. He took the gun, he shot 100 Vietnamese. He then took the knife and he killed the 101st one. And the teacher goes, well, Johnny, she goes, that's an interesting story. But I don't see what the moral is to that story. And he goes, it's obvious, teacher. Don't screw with my old man when he's been drinking. <laughs> you know? Now, that's funny, but let me tell you, you didn't screw with my old man when he was drinking. You know, one of my most crystal clear memories of my childhood was watching my father kick my mother across a room. I was have been six or six or seven at the time. Uh, and to this day, I mean, I can close my eyes. I can tell you where she was in the room. I can tell you what she was wearing. Uh, I can tell you, you know, all of that. And that's painful, you know. Uh, there are several other things that come if you have alcoholism in your family before. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you have distrustful relationships. And you particularly have distrustful relationships with, in, in my case, with, with men. Um, you know, I, I recently changed my job. I now work at a VA hospital and I don't know about a lot of you, but I tended to regard post-traumatic stress syndrome as being something like fibromyalgia. You know, I mean, it didn't really exist that much until I went to work at the VA. And I realized that our psych visits through the emergency room go nuts around Memorial Day, the 4th of July, and Veterans Day. And they do that because the movies are on television. And people are watching these movies, and they, they relive their combat experiences. And they tend to come back. This is, this is a very real thing. As an aside, let me mention to you that I, I think one of the things I'm learning from the people coming back from Iraq is that the women are getting a lot more post-traumatic stress syndrome than the men, uh, although they do seem to get over it fairly well. Uh, that's that's an aside. I mention that because a few. Anybody see Walk the Line? Let's see anybody see that movie. You know, pretty decent film about you know Johnny Cash and his alcoholism. Uh, and I'm sitting watching that movie, and there's one scene. Johnny Cash comes home drunk uh, with his first wife, uh, and he gets into an altercation with his wife. And you look over, and there's two little kids. The little boys with butch haircuts, one six, one eight, staring through the door, shaking. And I'm sitting there next to my wife and I'm going, you know, this is a bad movie. I, I don't, I don't want to sit here through this movie. This is, this is bad. You know, let's, let's go. Let's, we'll go get dinner or something. And she goes, you know, being the good Alanon that she is now, she said, sit down and shut up. You know, and, and we, we did watch the film. But, you know, that was, it was interesting because I had a double post-traumatic stress with that. Part of it was that I had come home drunk and abused my wife. 
I had done the very thing that my father did that I did not ever, ever want to do. I had done it in front of my kids that I did not ever want to do. And similarly, I think that the more basic thing was that it was those seeing those kids and being back in that position myself. You know, it is a, it is a difficult problem. Now, you know, we were talking about, in, in the, you know, step two. I was very fortunate in, in, with, with my intervention. Um, some, some of you have heard my bits of my story, but I, I had a suicide attempt and it was a serious suicide attempt. It wasn't a, you know, a gesture. Uh, and I was, I, I was in the car, in the car with the garage door shut, the engine running. I should by all rights have died in that garage. A next door neighbor happened, just happened to have left a window up on a cold night, just happened to get up to go to the bathroom and heard the car running. And despite the fact that I had made this woman's life miserable for the last six months of my alcoholism, called a friend to come over and get me out of the car. I mean, it was that close. Uh, and I truly believe that night, one o'clock in the morning, September 30th, 1986, God reached down, tapped me on the shoulder and said, not yet. Uh, and I truly, truly believe that. But one of the wonderful things that came along shortly after I got out of treatment and came back to this small little town that I was in was it just happened that they had set up and operated a little program for, uh, adult children. And I got to basically go through a two-month outpatient treatment program for being an adult child, which helped me, you know, helped me deal with that a great, you know, a lot of these issues. You ask yourself, what does this have to do with recovery? Well, like I told you, we sit and go through every time we come, what we were doing each of those years, where we were here, and what happened. This year, I got to tell you, things are as good for me as they have ever been. Uh, my our youngest son has finished school. Uh, you know, my practice is doing well. Uh, I'm in the process of kind of winding down toward retirement, and I'm very, very happy. But one of the things that has, has been a problem, and it's been an ongoing problem for me through 20 years of recovery, is this little voice inside my head that goes, when is this going to go wrong? When is this going to go bad? Because the house I grew up in, eventually everything went bad. At some point, somewhere along the line, my father would come home drinking very unpredictably and things went to hell. You know, so it, it has been, and I realized in the last couple of years that I managed to sap an awful lot of the joy of recovery. Because I simply couldn't enjoy the good times when they were, when the times were bad, I felt bad. When the times were good, I was looking for them to get bad. Because they always had. You know, these tapes come back so early in our memory. You know, the, I, I have a theory that, you know, we have to relearn and re-record tapes as we go through recovery. But the earlier a tape is laid down, <laughs> I think the more difficult that it is to change. Um, you know, I think a lot of men in, in the program, because we had alcoholic fathers or we had fathers who were, had alcoholic grandfathers and they were, you know, very codependent, had real issues, uh, you know, with, with that kind of thing. I, I well remember 
the day we buried my father, my brother, who does not drink, and God, I wish he did, because he's, he is one of these incredibly, he's a retired career federal prosecutor, okay? He is one of these people, most of us, as we get older and go through life, the gray stripe between black and white gets whiter. For him, it became an infinitely sharp line. There was right, there was wrong, he very rigid, very locked in. Now, we were both raised with a mother who said, if your father loved you, he wouldn't do these things. That was the message. And I think you get that message in a lot of alcoholic homes. If your father loved you, if your mother loved you, you know, he wouldn't do these things. We sat the day we buried my father. My brother came and sat on the couch in my living room, 48 years old, career federal prosecutor, not afraid of man, beast, God, or anybody, with tears running down his cheeks. And he said, you know, the man would have stopped a bullet for either one of us, but he never loved me. You know, it was a wound that had never healed. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that I think we can heal. I've had to heal in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and, and have healed through a lot of very good men who have taught me that you could be trusted, that you were not necessarily unpredictable, that you could love me even when I was not lovable. And I am, I am very grateful to all of you for having done that. Um, I've tried to, have tried as part of trying to interrupt the cycle of this disease, pass that on to my, my son. I would like, like my father who grew up in a very, cold. His father had committed suicide when he was 14, and he grew up in a very emotionally impoverished household. And my, I mean, you, you didn't see affection from my father. You saw anger. You saw the back of the hand coming sometimes, but you really didn't see affection. Uh, and I think that's the way a lot of us are when, you know, when we're drinking. Uh, because we have trouble loving ourselves. If we can't do that, we can't love anyone else. And I think my father, you know, I, the, my ultimate step that I learned from you people was that my father did the very best he could. You know, he, he never recovered. He never had the opportunity, but he did the best he could. And, you know, I had to learn to, to, as I said, trust men. Uh, to become more comfortable with you. Uh, I always chuckle about the fact that I got here because of my dad, and I'm not blaming him for my alcoholism at all. But, you know, I certainly got the genetic load from him. But the one person in the town that my father looked up to was the doctor. You know, there was anybody else was, uh, you know, my father didn't have a real high opinion of, but he did the doctor, so I mean, what was I going to do? That was the one thing I could do to try to earn my father's approval. And that got me here. And that got me to you folks. I'm very grateful to be here. This is a very short lead, but I'd, I, I have the feeling that probably some of you have some issues with fathers and recovery that you might want to talk about. Thank you. I'm Steve. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And like nature, I just abhor a vacuum, so I thought I'd jump up and just say a couple things. Um, I wanted to thank Dale for speaking so eloquently on this subject that I know touched me. Um, 
I'm actually speaking tomorrow, so I don't want to lose all my material by speaking right now. Actually, I don't have any material. You'll find that out tomorrow. Um, but I, too, uh, come from an alcoholic family, uh, although it seemed to have skipped a generation, came from my grandfather down to me. But I can see now how my dad was affected by it. But he was your classic, you know, World War II veteran, you know, wounded in combat, never talked to me about it, never said anything. I remember as a young boy being just absolutely fascinated by tracing the scars on his body, but he would never speak to me about it. And he was a hard, hard man. Um, God, he was a hard man. Uh, and maybe I'll speak to that a bit more tomorrow. But, uh, the thing of it is, and what resonated is that uh, my grandfather, as I said, had a drinking problem and also was a veteran and a combat veteran of World War One. And these were just hard men with harsh codes. Um, and I and I didn't understand it, and it was painful as hell to, to go through my entire life uh, and never hearing the words, I love you, from the men I most wanted to hear that from. Uh, and if anything, always felt that I never measured up. But I've come to grips with it, and I think in maybe a somewhat similar fashion to Dale, and I just want to say that I, that's how much it resonated with me, it's that they just did the best they could. And who am I to judge them? Because for God's sakes, I'm just trying to do the best I can do. And for God's sakes... If you wanted to look at failures or mistakes and hurting people, I've done my share of those things. And perhaps in forgiving them, it's a step towards forgiving myself. And I think that's an important piece of my recovery and our recovery. So thanks for letting me share a little bit. Uh, Mike, alcoholic from Sedona, Arizona. Um, I'm up here because uh, I need to be up here. Uh, I'm a little nervous. Um, I'm a member of the CIA Catholic Irish alcoholic. Uh, I know that there are at least three generations of alcoholism in my family. Um, And uh, in hearing uh, Dale speak, I know that I have some more amends to give to my wife, my ex-wife. My emotional uh, abuse to her, my emotional absence, the same thing that I received as a child. And so the, the healing goes on. Thank you. I'm Michael. I'm an alcoholic from Montgomery, Alabama. I'm, I'm sort of surprised to see myself up here because I, I didn't grow up in a in a in an alcoholic home, <clears throat> as far as I knew. Uh, but it turned out that both of my parents were adult children of alcoholics, and uh, one of the things that happened in uh, you know in in my <clears throat> Uh, attempts at recovery was that uh, you know I became the, the the spawn of the devil 
I didn't know until after I'd been to treatment uh, three times that alcoholism is just rampant in my family. Nobody ever talked about it. It, it was the elephant in the room. My my, <clears throat> yeah, and it, it and the disease was passed to me in a much more subtle fashion. Uh, I never felt threatened in my home. But what happened was that I got messages that weren't didn't quite sync up. I got messages that were spoken and then messages that were felt. My father never claimed to be a perfect man, but my mother told me that he was. My mother never claimed to be a perfect woman, but my father told me that she was. And so that any time I would have any confrontation with one parent, the other one was always there asking me, how dare you? The message that I heard said, just do the best you can and things will turn out all right. The message that I received by what it felt like was, well, that 98 was just fine on that test, but it could have been 100. My relationship with my parents did not survive my sobriety, and it always confused me why that was. But knowing about the alcoholic family explains so much of that now. What happened was that the anger that my parents both felt <clears throat> at their parents couldn't be directed at me because I was their son, their firstborn. What happened instead was that anger was directed at my family, who was entirely blameless, and the venom that would come out indirectly around me and spilled over to my wife and my children, my immediate family, you know, ultimately led to basically I divorced my parents. I have not seen or spoken to them for a number of years. And I find that very, very sad because they were good people doing the best they could. But again, they were victims of alcoholism uh, in the same sense that I was. Again, they didn't make me an alcoholic, but, you know, what Dale was saying, you know, even though it was not directed at me like it was at Dale, uh, touched, you know, touched the same buttons. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity of sharing that. Thank you. My name is Forrest. I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful to be here, grateful to be sober, and appreciate your story. Um, I didn't even know I was going to stand up to speak, but uh, with everybody speaking about uh, families, relationships with parents, etc., you know, I feel um, moved to uh, share my own experience with it. My um, my father was an oral surgeon uh, who wrote his own prescriptions for uh, uh, barbiturates uh, and amphetamines for years and actually survived a suicide attempt, uh, you know, taking a bunch of medicine, strapping himself to uh, like a dental chair, you know, long before I was ever conceived. And uh, 
And uh, I think to say that I grew up in a tumultuous household would um, sort of uh, vastly understate the issue. Um, my uh, my mother is a uh, is a physician, um, and uh, and yet I was in one of these houses where you know people were throwing dinner plates uh, at dinner time, uh, chasing people around the house, and uh, all kinds of foolishness like that. And uh, um. When I was 11 years old, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not telling my own story right now. I'm telling other people's story, which has its own problems. Um, but uh, but uh, I guess indirectly, it's part of my story. You know, I my um, uh, my father uh, came home one day and, and tore the house apart. Uh, you know, anything that was at any height uh, wound up on the floor. And, uh, you know, bookcases, uh, pictures, uh, the whole thing. And, and I remember we locked ourselves in a bedroom. I was 11 years old and uh, I had a pocket knife and I told my mother and my sister that if he came through the door, I was going to kill him. And, uh, um, he came out, uh, we came out the next morning after all the, uh, hubbub went down and um and he was lying in a pool of his own urine and vomit on the floor and uh you know luckily he was face down with his head turned towards the side so he hadn't aspirated and um and he got up and and said that it would never happen again and um uh my mother was on call the uh the next night because uh she was preparing to leave him so she had gone back to do another residency and uh um and he disappeared in the afternoon it was a very cold february day uh several feet of snow on the ground and um he went out and um my we called my mother at the hospital later and told her uh that um you know that he had disappeared and she said well i, I want you guys to lock yourselves in a bedroom and uh bring a phone in the room with you and uh and call me if anything happens and uh he came home and uh we did everything except lock the door and he came in, uh, opened up the door, uh, kneeled down to my sister and I and kissed us both, told us that he, that he loved both of us and then went to bed. And to make, you know, I'm dragging this on a little bit, maybe a little bit overdramatic, but, uh, you know, my mother told us to go wake him up the next day. And when we went in to wake him up, he, you know, he was dead and, um, had, uh, you know, taken a bunch of Dalmain. And it's unclear as to whether or not he had lost count of how many he had or exactly what had happened, but, you know, he died of this disease. And um, the next uh, seven years were uh, tumultuous for me, and I found out very shortly after that why my father drank as much as he did. You know, I, because before that, I couldn't really understand why he would fall out of booths, you know, at restaurants, uh, why he would chase people around the house. And, and it only took about two more years until I understood exactly why he did those things. And, uh, when I had my first, as much as I wanted to drink, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, it's a cliche now, but you know, it used to be funny the first time I heard it, you know, that I, you know, I knew a new freedom and a new happiness. You know, I, I didn't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. Uh, I could immediately see how my experience could benefit others. Uh, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity disappeared. And, uh, and I had a spiritual awakening uh, the first time I had as much to drink as I wanted. And, and I, you know, I think that for a long time alcohol saved my life until I was ready for a spiritual solution. Um, and some people know, you know, this is my first year here, but, um, you know, I, I got sober a while ago. Um, and, um, uh, and, and I look back, you know, I wound up actually being homeless at about, uh, 17 years old, sleeping in the backseat of my car. 
you know, after, you know, my family moved away and told me I wasn't welcome to come with them. And, uh, and so I had, you know, I had a lot of feelings about my family and, you know, this alcoholism being a, a family disease. Um, and I was sure that if you had my life, you'd drink too, you know. And, and all I'll tell you, this is a really long-winded segue into saying now that, you know, that my thinking about my family and what the problem is has vastly changed. And my sponsor, whenever I would go to him with a complaint in Charlottesville, used to say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Forrest, uh, can you clarify something for me? Because uh, I'm confused. Um, can you remind me again what the only problem is that you've ever had? You know? And, uh, and of course, the right answer to that was, oh, yeah, that's right, it's me. You know, that I am the only problem that I have ever had. Now... That doesn't discount the fact that really horrible things happen and that my upbringing could have been better, you know. Um, but uh, the issue now is not so much what happened, but how I, you know, how I'm still focused on how, you know, on what happened to me rather than moving on. A normal person, you know, might go through the same thing and be able to let go of what happened and forgive the people for how imperfect they were and, um, and seek to, you know, do better for their family, um, and not let it control their life. For me, I let the circumstances of my family life, uh, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me until I was, you know, much worse off even than the alcoholic, you know, legacy, you know, that, that had preceded me. And, um, and so now, uh, I look back, um, I'm grateful to say that I have a relationship with my family. My mother's proud of me. Um, you know, I look back at my father and I say, what a shame, you know, that he never got this message, you know, that he never had anybody pass on to him, you know, the fact that a miracle is possible, you know. And, um, and so, uh, yes, I come from an alcoholic family and, you know, yes, you know, child rearing, I call, you know, the Mount Everest of sobriety. You know, uh, it is, you know, the most challenging thing that, that I have done. And, uh, and, you know, certainly it's my responsibility to not pass on this legacy, you know, to my own children. And, and I, and I have to believe that my ongoing work with a sponsor in the steps is what facilitates that. Thank you. I'm Ben. I'm an alcoholic. I think, uh, as you were talking, what I remember the most is just the incredible shame. I mean, it just unbelievable. Um, you know, I saw him knock my mother down, <clears throat> down, and there was all kind of uh, yelling and screaming and door slamming all the time, all hours of the night. And uh, he also uh, had multiple affairs, and there were these drunk husbands coming to the house at 3 in the morning and threatening to kill him. And, you know, it was just a real... To, and then his problems with the medical board, and here here was this doctor, and now he's stripped, and just just the whole thing is just uh, incredibly shameful. He uh, got abstinent for uh, several times. He had three or four relapses before he finally actually got sober. He ended up at Talbot, and he preceded me into recovery. But every time he relapsed. It just told me once again, this thing didn't work. So it kind of fed. And even when he finally got it, I didn't trust it. You know, I, I just didn't believe it. it. You know, he would look a little better, but the bottom line is he was just still not drinking and very angry. And uh, so it was a real hindrance to me asking for help because I really didn't think it would work for me. And um, I, I, 
So my best solution for me was suicide. And I was in the process of making uh, the details of the plans. I didn't want it to be messy. I just wanted to have it where my my wife would be left with insurance money and kids would be taken care of financially, and that was about all I could offer. And and that was sort of that bleak gray hole I'd gone into, and there there was no solution other than that. And then uh, right then I got intervened on and. Since then, um, it's been, that was about 13 years ago. Um, and over the next five years, uh, I got to the point where I really understood that my father was sick and that he did the best he could with what he had to work with. And, and getting that point, that sort of forgiveness that came with that, uh, was very freeing, uh, very instrumental. And I don't think I could, Stay sober had I not gotten to that point, uh, because it's just too much, too much history, too much drag, um, almost no matter what you do. But uh, I'm grateful that it happened. Thank you, Dale. Um, I'm Dan. I'm an alcoholic. And um, I don't know, I, I came to the conference, you know, I've been coming over here with my kids, and um, thinking today about what you guys have been talking about reminds me of things that I used to think when I first got sober. And the thing that struck me was that uh, re-recording of the tape. Because when I got sober, you know, I had all kinds of reasons for drinking. I mean, I had everyone you could imagine, you know, the childhood issues, sexual abuse, father who drank. You know, I just put together this story of my life, and it gave me the excuse, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm just celebrating my 14 years of recovery after 14 years post-suicide not getting into recovery. So in 78, I had my suicide attempt, and it was it was a pretty good one. It was driving a car off the Columbia River Gorge after drinking antifreeze, and <laughs> it was pretty serious. Well, I had the backup plan because I didn't want to screw it up, you know. And, you know, I, I think about um, what preceded that. You know, it's just hopeless and helpless, and I, you know, there's no chance for me to ever recover, and I knew that this was going to be the, the only solution. And, and you mentioned being plucked, you know, saved from your own destruction. And certainly that happened to me. I was confronted in my own hospital on a bed with fractures of my spine and, you know, everybody pointed the finger and I admitted I had a problem. And they said, well, you're severely depressed and we're going to give you pills. And I said, thank you. you know? And so for 14 years I kept drinking and using and trying to control it. And um, I buried my father in that state. You know, he was a drinker and he was, you know, did things that drinkers do, but he was also, when, when he died, you know, it wasn't a good situation except for the night he died. You know, I for the first time in 20 years, spent the whole day with him for some reason. You know, I called him that morning. He took me to his work. I took him to my work. We had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. I went home, and then the fireman called me and said, you have to come and pronounce him, otherwise we have to take him to hospital autopsy. And So I got to pronounce my own father, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I know that I wasn't okay with the situation until I got to recovery. And I found out that he was like I am, and I was like he was. And, um, you know, thank God I have my children who I've raised in 
two young children I've raised in sobriety and three older daughters who have seen me go from a drunken idiot to a fairly sane, good parent. And uh, one of them just called me. She's on her way to Thailand, and you know, I'm pretty worried about it. But um, you know, my family's changed because I've changed. And when I look back at my life, I no longer see the terrible, awful childhood. I see somebody who did the best they could. You know, we all say that they, they did the best they could. But when I think about what the changes have occurred, I realize that I was the same kind of father my father was. And I had the gift of being saved from my own destruction. I had the gift of a program of recovery. And I've had the gift of being able to go back and recreate those tapes. You know, so the hatred goes away and the forgiveness comes. And I think I've been forgiven. And I think that I certainly they both forgive them. Thank you. I think we'll close now. Could we join together and say the serenity prayer, please? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. <laughs>